So I'd like for you to take your Bible and open it to Mark chapter 7. Give you just a minute to find that. Mark 7. If you don't have a Bible, there's pew Bibles near you. I would definitely encourage you to use one so you can have that text of God's Word in your hand. We do bring up verses sometimes on the screen, but they are generally verses that are away from our main text so that you can stay on the main text in your Bible. So try to have that in front of you if you can. I want you to see it with your own eyes. Last week, we read uh, verses 1 to 23, and we really only had time to focus on the first half, roughly, of that section. And we saw how Jesus responded um, to this question slash accusation against him that the scribes and Pharisees brought to him about this hand-washing tradition that they had uh, that was passed down from the Jewish elders. And the main point, I would say, that we saw in all of that was, and I won't go over everything from last week because that message is certainly findable on the website if you needed to listen to it, if you missed it, uh, if you weren't here or whatever, but... Here was the main point. Even our most treasured traditions must be carefully examined in light of Scripture. All tradition, whether an individual one, a church-wide one, whatever, must always be subservient to the Word of God. The proper question is always, what does Scripture say? What does the Bible say? So today, let's read those first 23 verses again to kind of get our heads back into the context of the passage, and then we'll try to deal more closely with the second half, verses 14 to 23, okay? So let's read together. You follow along, uh, Mark 7, 1 to 23. This is the word of the living and true God. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? He said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. He gives them an example. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If a man tells his father or his mother, 
Whatever you would have gained from me as Corban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. We talked about that part last week. Moving on to verse 14. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. That's the word of the Lord. Now, I said in the... um, The introduction last week to that sermon that this passage answers two important questions for us. One was, how should we think about tradition? And we kind of set out to cover that last week somewhat. Number two question was, what is it that defiles a person? In other words, what is it that makes a person unclean before God? And we're not just talking about Jewish people. We're talking about us. What is it that makes us unclean before God? So again, having dealt with that first question some last week, let's deal with the second one. What is it that defiles a person? This has got to be one of the most critical um, spiritual lessons in all of the Bible. The reason I say that is because if we get this wrong, the entire gospel is undermined. I want you to imagine with me for a moment that you are a medical doctor, okay? You have a great responsibility to take care of your patients, right? And near the very top of your priority list of your responsibilities to the patient's If not, number one on this list is the responsibility to use your knowledge and your skill to correctly diagnose health problems that people have, right? Why is the diagnosis of utmost importance? Well, that's common sense, right? If we don't diagnose the problem correctly then whatever treatment we think we're doing is wrong. It's not going to help. 
matter of fact, certain treatments can actually harm the patient if you're treating the wrong thing, right? In the medical field, there's misdiagnoses all the time. And, you know, the level of danger in that can go from, like, fairly harmless to extremely dangerous. In other words, if you uh, misdiagnose a stomach bug or something, that's one thing. Maybe there won't be a lot of harm done there, but what if you misdiagnose cancer or a brain tumor or something of that nature? What if you miss it? You've caused your patient to lose valuable treatment time, right? And it could result in their death. Maybe you could have helped them. Maybe you could have helped them get a few more months or years with their family, but you missed the diagnosis. And as I said, it happens all the time, and I'm not picking on doctors. Doctors are fallible people just like the rest of us. They're going to make mistakes. Now think about this. If, if missing a diagnosis in the medical field, which deals with mostly physical things, if that can be that serious, what about misdiagnosing the greatest problem known to man, which is in the spiritual realm? How serious would it be to miss that diagnosis? Switch up the example for a minute in your mind now. Imagine that you're not the doctor anymore. You're now the patient, okay? And your doctor is unlike any doctor you've ever known, okay? Your doctor is the best doctor known to man. Your doctor is an infallible doctor. He never once has missed a diagnosis. He is the supreme expert in his field. He's omniscient. All-knowing. And imagine that he has thoroughly and accurately diagnosed you with a terminal illness. And he tells you that although your condition, your disease is terminal if untreated, he has a cure for it. What are you going to do with that information? How foolish would it be to ignore what he says, right? And just go about your life like, ah, he doesn't know what he's talking about. That is the seriousness of the issue that we're dealing with today in Mark 7. Jesus tells us here what our main problem is as human beings. And we need to be sure that we listen to his diagnosis, right? So look at what he says here. The first thing that Jesus does is he dispels faulty thinking. He makes a particular distinction here, which is the first point here. Jesus makes the outside-inside distinction, okay? He makes this outside-inside distinction. You might have to switch my slides for me, Jeff. I don't think my iPad's working up here. Jesus makes the outside-inside distinction. That's not a uh, 
technical term that you'll find in some textbook. It's just my own wording as to what Jesus is doing here. Look at, look at it with me, though, in verse 14 and 15. It says, um, He called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. By the way, that's a signal. He's about to say something extremely important, right? Hear me, all of you, and understand. What is it? He says, there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defiles him. This is vital to understand, both for the people that Jesus was talking to in his day and for us today. So let's think about, let's just think about defilement for a moment, okay? Jesus, or excuse me, God had told the Israelites through the Mosaic law that they were, um, there were certain outward Things that, want, that would defile them if they touched them. Meaning, uh, if they touched those particular things or come in contact with particular things, they would be ceremonially unclean before God. And that would require a washing, a ceremonial cleansing. Things like touching a dead body or coming in contact with certain illnesses or diseases. Or eating certain foods even. And again, if they came in contact with those things, they were to go through a ritual cleansing and sometimes give a sacrifice to symbolize atonement for that defilement, okay? And God, of course, had his reasons for those laws. No doubt some of them had an element of health to them. God was perhaps protecting his people's health in some ways. Other times, it was to distinguish them from the surrounding pagan nations to show that their customs, the way that they lived, was distinct as the people of God. They don't blend in with the rest of the world. But what God had intended to demonstrate by all those things overall was not that defilement is merely outward. We know that's not the case. What God was teaching his people was that defilement, when they were defiled, it made them unfit for communion with him. They needed washing. They needed cleansing, right? And as we often do as human beings, these Pharisees and scribes, they missed the point. They were erroneously um, confining this idea of defilement to just outward issues. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, those type of things. They thought that these outward things was their greatest danger to being defiled. But Jesus says, here in Mark 7, 14 to 23, defilement, we might say impurity or uncleanness, whatever term you want to use, uncleanness before God is not some outward thing. The problem is actually much deeper and more inherent in us than you think it is, he says. 
Your main problem doesn't concern protecting yourself from what's out here. Your problem is who you are on the inside. Think about the, uh, the mindset here for a second of the Pharisees and the scribes. If defilement is mostly an outward thing, if that's the case, then what would you have to do to be clean and stay clean before God? Just keep the outward parts clean, right? That's what you would have to do. Keep the unclean things on the outside from getting in. Hence the need to ritually wash your hands before eating. And in that way, we kind of see why the Pharisees were, were separatists. They had this view of personal holiness that says, I'm holy, and I just need to keep myself holy and keep myself away from all of the pagan filth around me and outside of me. But they're missing the point on something really vital, weren't they? They're missing the fact that they themselves were not, in fact, holy before God. And it had to do with their own hearts on the inside. We cannot, I mean, this is, I hope, common sense to us, but it's worth saying we cannot isolate ourselves away from sin. You know that, right? That's been the attitude of various groups down through history. If I can just isolate myself totally from the world, I'll be more holy. I'll live in a proverbial cave away from society, and I'll be a holy person before God, away from all this filth and wickedness. Well, if you did that, you might take away certain temptations that would be good to take away that society would put before you. That's true. But can you keep sin totally away? No. It travels with you into the proverbial cave. It resides in your heart. It goes where you go. It's in you at the very core of who you are. That is what Jesus is teaching here. So that's what Jesus immediately does with this important statement in front of this crowd. He makes this distinction between outside and inside. He says, listen up. Everybody listen. This is important. There's nothing outside a person that can go in to defile you. You're already defiled on the inside. The things that come out of you defile you because they come from a defiled place. Apparently, that was kind of mysterious to even his disciples and, and those listening to him because they have to ask him to explain it a little bit. And when they do, he's like, are you also without understanding? We kind of get this idea that in Jesus' mind, this was so basic. They should have gotten this. Which ironically demonstrates the very thing that he was trying to explain. They were dull of heart. So dull that they couldn't understand the teaching about their own heart. And so, as Jesus had to do many times with great patience to his dull disciples, 
He explains a little bit further, and we get that in verses 18 and 19. He says, Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside can't defile him since it enters not his, what? His heart, but into his stomach and is expelled. There's the key to the whole thing. The heart of the matter is the matter of the heart. The heart of the matter is the matter of the heart. Whatever enters from the outside can't defile us because it doesn't go into our heart, into the core of who we are. So what does that tell us? It tells us that Jesus, the master physician, who has not missed a diagnosis before, who knows everything about us because he created all things, including us, he says the key to understanding defilement And why you're unclean before God, why you're not right with Him, which includes us by default, it's found right here. Everybody could point to this on yourself and say, this is where my problem is, right here. It's not out here. It's right here. It's me, oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer, I think one song said. It's me, it's me, it's me, oh Lord. So, to go back to what these um, traditions were kind of pointing them towards, when you eat something in the marketplace, um, even if a pagan Gentile touched it, where does it go? It goes down the esophagus, into the stomach, through your intestines, and out in the toilet, right? Jesus says it's expelled. That's what he means. It comes out. It does not go into your heart. And he's not talking about the pumping organ in your chest. He's talking about just your heart, meaning the very core, central thing that is you. The very center of who you are. The the heart in the Bible is the center of your will and even your intellect and even your emotions. That's the way the Bible uses the word heart in many cases. The very core of who you are as a person, where your will comes from, your thoughts, your emotions, everything. So whatever you eat can't defile or change that, who you are. And kind of as a side note, but very much related, Mark, as he's writing this gospel, remember he's not adding his own uninspired words. His words are inspired by the Holy Spirit. He's writing this gospel under that inspiration, and he makes sure that we don't miss one of the ramifications as it pertains to food. He says at the end of verse 19, look at it in your Bible. Verse 19, at the very end, Mark says, Thus he declared all foods clean. You see that? So just as Jesus was Lord of the Sabbath, Mark 2.28, he's also Lord of the law, the Mosaic law. And so Mark says for us very plainly, because we're dull of heart too, and we miss things, he says, hey, by the way, that means all foods are now clean based on Jesus' teaching here. And of course, that's a truth found 
throughout the New Testament and other places. This is not just found in Mark as if it's an outlier of some kind. There are still groups today who even in some cases refer to themselves as Christian who believe that unless you follow the Mosaic dietary laws, you're not obeying God. Is that true? I don't know how you read Mark 7, 19 and believe that. It is a truth found in other places as well, though. For instance, over in Acts chapter 10, let me summarize what happened there with Peter. You remember this? Peter gets a vision from God, and Peter is a devout Jewish man who would follow at that time the Mosaic dietary laws. And so he would have never eaten anything unclean, or another word is used in Acts chapter 10 is the word common. Common and unclean mean the same thing. He had never eaten any of that. And so one day God shows him this vision where this sheet comes down out of heaven. And there's various animals on it. All sorts of animals on that thing. And, and, and God says, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter says, no, I can't do that, Lord. I've never eaten anything that is common or unclean. In other words, I've followed the law, Lord. I can't eat some of these animals here. And he hears the reply from God that says, what God has made clean, do not call unclean or common. And he reiterates the vision to Peter three different times before the sheet goes back up to heaven. And Peter's kind of contemplating what this means. And all of a sudden, there's a knock at his door. Right on the heels of that vision, men had come from this Gentile man in his house named Cornelius. They're knocking on the door and they're saying, God showed us a vision to send for a guy named Peter. They said he would be here. The vision said he'd be in this house. And God said, bring Peter back to Cornelius' house and hear what he has to say. So Peter would not have normally wanted to be in that man's house because he would, have be, he would have been unclean according to the law. He was a Gentile, Cornelius was. But God sends Peter to that man's house. He preaches the gospel there and many of those people in the house get saved. They receive the Holy Spirit as well, just like Jewish believers had. And so God shows Peter through that experience that what God has cleansed, whether it be food or whether it be people, do not call them unclean any longer. That's what God tells Peter. And that's what Mark is saying here too in verse 19. Thus he, Jesus, declared all foods clean. So that's kind of an important secondary teaching that's found in our passage here. Let's move on just a little bit, though, to number two of, of what Jesus' argument and teaching is here in the, in the passage we're looking at. He says this, or he doesn't say this. This is the next point. Jesus pinpoints the true source of defilement, the true source. What is it? Well, we've been hitting on it already. It's not a secret. You saw it plain as day, hopefully. It's the heart. That is the true source of what defiles us as people. So 
Look with me at what Jesus says comes out of the human heart. And I'm referring to the list in verse 21 and 22. What a list. One man called this list a catalog of horrors. Let's just go through the 13 things and and just define them a little bit. Not talking about them long at all. Some of them very brief, but just to make sure we, we know what these words mean. First of all, he says evil thoughts. That comes out of your heart. That means evil reasoning, evil ideas. And that's at the head of the list. J.C. Ryle said this, Thoughts are the parents of words and deeds. Thoughts are the parents of words and deeds. Think about that. Everything we do and say passes through the mind first. And this wording from Jesus, by the way, just shows us once again how the Bible uses this term heart. He's talking about our heart, but notice he says Thoughts proceed from it. So are we talking about this thing? No, we're talking about the center of everything we are. Intellect, will, emotions. He's talking about the moral, the intellectual, and the emotional center of your being. Proverbs says everything flows out of your heart. The issues of life, the springs of life come from your heart. Thoughts, actions, everything. Next, he says sexual immorality. The word is pornea. Pornea. You can hear where the word pornography comes from in that word, right? Pornea in the Greek. It means any kind of sexual activity that God does not permit. And that covers all, all kinds of things. We won't even say all of them right now. But it covers... It covers homosexuality. It covers sexual activity between unmarried people. It covers a wide gamut of sexual sin. And where does that all come from? The human heart. Next, he says theft. That just means taking what's not yours, stealing. That corresponds to the Eighth Commandment. So Jesus is telling us here, hey, you're all thieves at heart. Theft is in your heart. You think of yourself that way? That you're a thief? Maybe you don't find your, maybe you can't remember the last time you stole something physical, but do we steal other things all the time? We steal God's glory all the time. We just got to align ourselves with Jesus' thinking here. Theft is in our hearts. How about murder? That's the unlawful killing of a human being by another human being. That corresponds with the sixth commandment. So when you think about that, does murder only reside in the heart of some person suffering from a psychiatric issue? Is it only a problem in the heart of the worst people of society? Only the people in prison? Or the people in a mental institution? That's not what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about all of us. The human heart in general, murder, is found in here. The first human being in the world 
Cain. He was a murderer. He killed his own brother. And that is what is in all of us. Next he says adultery. That of course means sexual activity with someone other than your spouse. That corresponds with the seventh commandment. And that earlier term sexual immorality, that covers more of a wider range. This one is more specific on adultery. It comes from here. Coveting. That means desiring more than one's due. Greediness. Insatiableness. Never being satisfied with what you have. Where does that come from? The heart. Wickedness. It means, that word means lack of moral values, baseness, sinfulness. He's not done. Deceit. It means taking advantage of people through underhanded methods. How much of that goes on today? From the government officials all the way down to the regular Joe Schmo who cheats on his taxes or cheats someone in a business deal. It's happening every day, big ways and small ways. And again, it stems from a problem in the human heart. Sensuality. This means lack of restraint, which involves conduct that violates all bounds of what is socially acceptable. Or you might word it this way, just... Lacking moral restraint. Sensuality. How about envy? This is an interesting one because the, in the original language it literally reads I. E-Y-E. Like this organ here. It's used in this case as a metaphor for seeing and wanting. Translated in English as envy. He says slander next. Slander, abusive speech that's falsely spoken that damages a person's reputation. Anybody been slandered before? Have you ever slandered someone else before? It's a harder question, isn't it? But if we're all honest, we'd have to say, yeah, I've done that before. That's what's in here. Pride, this is a state of undue sense of one's importance, bordering on arrogance and haughtiness. And then lastly on the list, foolishness, a lack of prudence or good judgment or a lack of sense, either moral sense or intellectual sense, just foolishness. That is an ugly list, isn't it? We could see why the man I quoted earlier called it a catalog of horrors. Because if you think about it, these are the things that wreck homes, that ruin lives, that break relationships, that split churches, that start wars, that cause all kinds of suffering that brings about all kinds of injustice, that fosters fighting, it feeds hatred. Jesus says those are the things that are in the human heart. Wow. And again, I want to just keep reminding us, he isn't talking about the criminals of the world. 
He's talking about every single person who has ever been born since Genesis chapter 3 when the human race fell into sin with the one notable exception of the Lord Jesus himself. Every single person's heart is defiled by these things. And actually more because he didn't intend to be to give an exhaustive list. He's just rattling off in the moment 13 examples. We can find other places in Scripture where there's lists of other sins that, of course, come out of our heart as well that contain things that are not even on this list. So, having heard Jesus' words here, let me ask you something. Do you think Jesus would agree with the statement that we often hear today that says, we're all basically good at heart? Or what about this advice? Would he like this advice? Would he say that's good advice to this statement? Just follow your heart. How often do we hear that advice from people? When I hear it, I just cringe. What does your heart tell you to do? You should do that. Does that sound advice for anyone? The human heart is a cess pool of wickedness. And that's coming from the physician himself who makes 100% accurate diagnoses every time. He's never wrong. He knows us better than we know ourselves. And this is what he says is in all of our hearts. And if we're honest, we'd have to agree with him, not only just listening to him, but we'd agree with him by our own experience because our own experience fits with his description. We see it in others, and we see and feel it in our own hearts, don't we? And it is interesting to me, from a related standpoint, but just slightly different, it's interesting when you do a survey or, or like an overview of the human heart in Scripture, what it will tell you. You can, look, you can do this anytime. Use a concordance. They can be found online or if you prefer the big, thick book concordance, you can do it either way. Look up the word heart in the scripture. It'll list out every time it's used. And here's what you'll find. And I'm not going to list all of them because we don't have time. This is just a, a small portion. First of all, it's evil continually. Genesis 6, 5. Its intentions are evil from the beginning, from youth. Genesis 8, 21. It says foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child in Proverbs 22. Isn't that interesting? Foolishness is bound up there from birth. We've all noticed it. You don't have to teach children to be foolish or sinful. They just are. Why do you think that is? Because we all are by default. It also says the human heart is fully set to do evil. Fully set to do evil. Ecclesiastes 8.11. It says the heart is full of evil and madness. Ecclesiastes 9.3. It says it's inclined toward idols. Jeremiah 9.14. It says speech comes from the heart. Think about that one. 
Do we need to talk about how hurtful and damaging speech can be? James chapter 3 just lays it out there on the line. It says, our tongue is set on fire by hell. No human being can tame it, he says. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison, James 3, 8. And where do those words, that poison, where does it come from? Jesus said it comes from the heart. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. It says our hearts are dull, Matthew 13, 15. Dull means unresponsive, like a stone. It says our hearts are darkened with foolishness, Romans 1, 21. It says our hearts are full of lust, Romans 1, 24. Here's a telling one. It says in Proverbs 6.18 that the Lord hates hearts that devise wicked plans. But if you think just a minute ago we were looking at the list that Jesus said comes out of our hearts. And what was the top thing on the list? Evil thoughts. Evil reasonings. Evil ideas. Evil plans we might say. The Lord hates those things. Proverbs 6. And yet that is what's in all of us. We can see pretty easily why we're enemies of God in our sin. I hope you feel the weight of this. I'm not trying to tear you down, but the the weight of this is in proportion to the glory that you'll sense when when you're given the cure. Okay? Romans 3, 8, excuse me, Romans 3, 10 to 18 tells us also how broken we are. Does this sound like the description of people who are quote-unquote good at heart? Romans 3.10, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless No one does good, not even one. Listen to all the descriptions. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That is not a description of people who are good at heart. Am I right? Maybe out of all the verses in the Bible, Jeremiah 17, 9 is the clearest and most succinct about the heart. It says this, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Part of the problem having a wicked heart is that we're in denial about how wicked we are. It's one of the symptoms. It deceives us. It's ill. And we can't even fully know it or understand it in our own power. Is there anybody that can understand the human heart? There is. Because the very next verse, which I don't have on the screen, the very next verse in Jeremiah 17, verse 10 says, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind. So we are deceived by our own hearts, but the Lord sees things perfectly clear. 
He sees, he sees things like they are. So we here, by the Lord Jesus, have been diagnosed. And he says that we have wicked, evil, depraved, defiled hearts. Suddenly washing the hands to try to be clean seems laughable, doesn't it? And Jesus is just thinking, you hypocrites. He tells them, you guys don't have a clue. You're washing the outside. Do you realize what's on the inside, he's saying? (laughs) One man, Danny Aiken, he said it pretty starkly and clearly. He said, the basic problem of fallen humanity is not what we do, but who we are. Our very identity, apart from Christ, is wicked, sinful. That's what's in us. That is what sin has done. And what's sad is that the fallen tendency of human beings is for us to think that we can somehow impress God with how good we are. And meanwhile, God is saying, do you know what is inside of that heart of yours? It is a sewer of sin. I want you to look at this quote with me from the Puritan preacher Matthew Henry. He said this commenting on Jeremiah 17:9. Just follow along with me as I read it. If you can read it on the screen, it may be small for some of you to read. I apologize, but it says there is wickedness in our hearts which we ourselves are not aware of. And do not suspect to be there. Nay, it is a common mistake among the children of men to think themselves, their own hearts at least, a great deal better than they really are. It, the heart, cheats men into their own ruin. And this will be the aggravation of it that they are self-deceivers, self-destroyers. The case is bad indeed, and in a manner deplorable and past relief, if the conscience which should rectify the errors of other faculties is itself a mother of falsehood and a ringleader in the delusion, what will become of a man if that in him, which should be the candle of the Lord, give a false light? If God's deputy in the soul that is entrusted to support his interests betray them, such is the deceitfulness of the heart that we may truly say, who can know it? Who can describe how bad the heart is? I said at the beginning of this that this is one of the most critical spiritual issues in all the Bible. Let me further explain why that is before we close. This is what it boils down to. If our hearts are bad, the very center of who we are, then we need as a remedy for this much more than social reform, much more than more education, or any other worldly solution. To be made right with God, to be cleansed of this defilement, we need nothing less 
than a new heart. This one is past hope, the sinful heart, the fallen heart, the one that we get by default in sin with our sin nature. And in the gospel, that is what God does. That is the thing of beauty that I want you to hear. God gives people new hearts. Listen to Ezekiel 36, 26. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone, that dull thing in there. I will remove it from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, one that's soft and receptive to me. In Jeremiah's prophecy, looking forward to the new covenant time that we're now living in, the new covenant in Christ, he says, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. So salvation is God instantaneously making you into a new person. You might, not, you might not instantly overcome every single sin that you've ever struggled with. That's going to be a fight all the way until God totally removes our sin at the end of the age. But you will have a new heart. And that new heart has new desires and new longings and new affections. As a matter of fact, it's like being born all over again. That's why Jesus uses the metaphor in John 3 of being born again. It's the work of the Spirit of God on a fallen, dead sinner to bring us to spiritual life and make us new from the inside out. So here's the bottom line and and really what I want us to walk away with today. Jesus, who knows the human heart better than anyone else, has taken everything in that catalog of horrors that was on the screen earlier. He's taken all those sins and all those issues in our wicked hearts. He's taken them to the cross and he paid for every one of them there. And he's done that for every single person who will ever come to him in repentance and faith. The darkness, this should draw our hearts out to the Lord Jesus. The darkness and the filthiness of your heart did not repulse him. He didn't say, whoa, this is way too dirty than I thought. I'm out of here. They don't deserve this. I'm done. Could have said that. Instead, in an act that is too... Wonderful and glorious for my words this morning. Jesus took on human flesh, became a man, knowing precisely what was in here. There's no secrets to him. Knowing how he was going to suffer. And he goes to the cross where he was willing to die in his people's place to cleanse them from all of that defilement. Isn't that glorious? And by human thinking, we, just, we tend to give ourselves the benefit of the doubt. We think that the best part of us is in here. You know, even mothers, I've seen them on court TV. 
And I'm not talking about these Judge Judy type shows. I'm talking about real murder uh, trials. Mothers get on the stand for their son having committed some atrocity, murdering multiple people, and they say, I just don't know what happened to him. He had a really good heart. We tend to think that the best parts of us are here. Jesus says the worst part of you is here. You and I are messed up to the very core and powerless to fix ourselves. But the beauty, again, back to the beauty, this same Jesus who knows all the details of this is willing to give us the cure. The same doctor who diagnosed the problem also provides the cure. And the cure is Christ himself. That's what he came to do. To secure the salvation of those who will believe in him. So, even though your heart's deceitful and, a, and deceitful above all things and desperately sick and wicked, there is one who has come to give you a new heart. And for the people of God, we just say, praise the Lord, right? I hope God uses this passage just to give each of us this fresh appreciation. If I can use that word, it almost seems inappropriate to use it that way, but I I mean it, I hope you understand how I mean it, a fresh appreciation or realization for how wicked our sinful hearts were without Christ. And I pray that once we see the weight of that, that we will see how weighty his grace is and his cleansing is to overcome all that. God would save a person like me with a heart like mine? I'm shocked. I owe him everything then. And if you find yourself being drawn to Christ this day, maybe for the first time, maybe you're seeing the dismal diagnosis of your heart for the first time, I just pray you'll come to him for cleansing. It may be that God used his word this morning to give you a new heart that we've been talking about. And now you have a heart that wants to come to him, that wants to obey him and love him and follow him and receive him. He's ready and willing to receive you. That's good news this morning. Let's pray, and then we'll have our Lord's Supper. Father, thank you for this brutally honest and accurate assessment of our hearts. Help us to keep this in mind, Lord, as we navigate life. There is no room in us for self-righteousness because we're all in the same boat. We were born with a heart that is defiled and wicked to the very core, and nothing but your power can fix that and make us new. Thank you, Lord, that you didn't leave us like we were. Thank you that you can remove hearts of stone and replace them with hearts of flesh that now love you. Lord, just increase our faith and love for you. Thank you for your salvation in Christ. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.